to episode 92 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Faith in Victoria, and uh, now on playtesting, Dust on and Rad slash uh, Nimbus. And today my guest is none other than Ethan Gilsdorf, who is a an expert on all things fantasy and many other things besides which we'll uh, delve into here in a minute. But hi, Ethan, how's it going? It's going very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. For those that are not 100% sure what I'm talking about, uh, Ethan uh, wrote a book called Fantasy Freaks and Gaming Geeks, which is a, uh, I don't know if, I read um, part of the first part, I didn't get to the second part, but uh, is a sort of an, an odyssey from starting out role-playing and then uh, an examination of the sort of things that surround us in, in role-playing and more, more broadly in, in geek culture. Have I fairly represented you there? That's, that's, a, good, that's a good way to introduce it, absolutely. Um, it's, it's my effort to sort of talk about the history and impact of fantasy and gaming and the various subcultures uh, that have sprung up over the years, but through the lens of myself and my own personal uh, story, uh, having grown up starting doing some of this stuff. I'm, I think I'm a bit older than you, Daniel. I'm, I, uh, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and um, uh, it was a slightly different time for being a geek in those days. And, uh, you know, 20, 25 years later, um, you know, the, the, the culture changed, and I became more interested or rediscovered it in a way, uh, Dungeons and Dragons and all the rest. And, uh, and the story of, of, of that sort of is, is, is the focus of this book. Here it is, the actual book title um book jacket and uh yeah so we'll talk more about that but that's that's a very good way to introduce it um there's sure there's, well let's uh, not let's not bury the lead then so um how did you get started in role playing it's generally my my first question and then we can take it from there sure well uh sort of set your way back machine to 1979 um i was about just about to turn 12 years old and like a lot of stories that I've heard about role-playing games, in particular uh, D&D, but other role-playing games, um, the, the kind of classic way that people get introduced is that someone introduces them to it. Um, and right. so I had never heard of the game before. I was uh, just come back from a year away, and, and a friend of, or I should say a new friend, had moved across the street from me, and he, he told me about this game D&D. Had I ever heard of it? Did I want to play? And I, of course, I had no idea what he was talking about. And, uh, and he basically just taught me how to play. And we were these 12-year-old kids in this small town in New Hampshire. And uh, that's kind of how it started. And that would have been in seventh grade, just before the first, yeah, it was the summer before my eighth grade year. So, and that was the beginning of, uh, of my adventure and, and interest, interest in all this stuff. And from there, it led to, you know, interest in fantasy and science fiction, uh, fiction and rings and all that. Yeah, I um, at that time I, I grew up in New Zealand. I think perhaps it's nice to be to say, but I think we're fairly similar age. Um, I didn't ex sort of experience any of the um, uh, well, not in any not in any great to any great extent the sort of the fear of Dungeons and Dragons. And I noticed that on your um, on your website, EthanGilsdorf.com, um, that you have a blog article which references five or six different snippets of um, sort of documentaries and, and snippets from mazes, monsters, and so forth surrounding uh, role-playing. Um, and that that particular article, that 60 Minutes article, uh, left a, a strong impression on me, although not so many, so much on the people around me, apart from 
a woman in the uh, the office at uh, at the school where my mother worked, um, and she uh, she refused point blank to photocopy any of the Dungeons and Dragons stuff that that came in that she felt it was evil and felt almost certain that by touching she'd become possessed. So, did did you have any sort of those sort of experiences um, being into role playing at that time? I I actually didn't. Um... I grew up in a pretty liberal, lax, uh, parental uh, supervision environment, and so even if you know the folks who were around me at the time who were who were supposed to be paying attention to what I was doing really had an idea what we were doing, they probably wouldn't right. wouldn't have cared anyway. But uh, sure. it, it actually wasn't something that specifically touched me. But I remember hearing about it at the time. Right. I do the sixty minutes uh, story. And yeah. some of the stuff that had come up, the close, I would say the closest thing that came to, I wouldn't say a panic or a scare, but we, you know, I was playing with, at this point I was in probably second or third year in high school and um, had a pretty good, pretty good group of friends that were meeting on a regular basis to play D&D usually every Friday night. And some right. local reporter from a local newspaper decided to hang out with us for the night to get a sense of what this game was about. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> She was very fair. She didn't really understand the game, but she wasn't there to judge it or to, you right. know, suggest how we were casting, uh, you know, demonic, uh, you know, spells or, or, you know, resurrecting demons or any kind of things in any kind of thing like that. But uh, that was sort of, uh, it was more, what is this game about? And, you know, um, how do you play it? And sort of what's this fad that has reached the small town? Right, right. And that was the extent of it. was Go ahead. We want the best behavior, you guys, with your, uh, like, the, the, did you ever talk to the so much? Like, now we don't want to damage the hobby here by having that, because I, I guess, um, to a degree, you're sort of, you were the face of Dungeons & Dragons for that small town and the readership back in those days without the engineering. Yeah. You know, that may have been the only contact people had from a prim primary source. So, so yeah. did you talk about any time about what you were going to do? or? No, I don't think we did. I don't know that I was sophisticated or <laughs> self-aware or media savvy enough to know that I should be, careful about what we said. I think we were just our dorky selves and we just, you know, this woman showed up and it was, it was funny, but the, the article, I, I, I collected a, a selection of things here that you can see just off camera. Uh, we'll be able to see until I bring them into the view. But one, one of the, um, one of the things that I, I discovered in, uh, in uh, sort of catalyst for, for writing my book, fantasy freaks and gaming geeks was, this box of Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing game paraphernalia I hadn't seen in many years. Uh, and one of the things right. I found in the box was it was a photocopy of that article that had been written. Nice. Uh, nice. That I sent to my, sent to my parents or something. And, uh, you know, someone had saved it in, in any case. So it's, it's, it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty tame um, interpretation of sort of what, you know, what, what the hysteria was at the time. There were certainly a lot of other stories that were a lot more, particularly more conservative parts of the country, in, of the United States. Right, right. I mean, I think it was just a um, an opportunity to get on get on somebody about something, right? But you know that uh, the time when that that art, that sixty minutes article, I've always spoken about it on the show a number of times before. But um, being as somebody in the media uh, yourself, um, that was a day. There was a program in New Zealand called uh, Foreign Correspondent, which was basically a best of from 60 Minutes and 2020 and all that type of stuff sort of all in together a series of um, documentaries they purchased. And that one was that one was on. Um, and having played Dungeons and & Dragons and also being um, old enough to sort of have critical thought capac uh, capabilities, um, I watched it and thought, 
they're so wrong, and the slanderers is so wrong. What does that say about the other articles that they they have? Yeah, I I, I think the 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 memory about that that I recall the most was this it was this uh, layer I remember reading in some book about the history of of RPGs that either Gary Gygax or someone else had said you know that 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 sixty minutes news story was the best thing that ever happened to the game because it it yeah, really yeah. it really made it seem uh, dangerous and kind of forbidden. Increase <laughs> <laughs> the sales by you know tenfold or something. Uh, oh, I, I dare say, yeah, it certainly wouldn't have hurt. But yeah, yeah, the whole thing about it was like you say, you know, it's just like like dangerous, dangerous. And, I, and on the first actually first episode of Penny Red, I give my father a hard time because he watched that um, and he didn't really care to find out too much about what was going on. And so I, I thought that perhaps there was poor parenting from not to get more involved and make sure that his son was not dabbling in a dangerous quasi. Yeah art but no he, he apparently either had excellent judgment or uh lacked the the necessary um caring at the end of his work week because he was a teacher as well at a high school um so he dealt with teenagers all day every day he's like oh god now i've got to hang out with another one to find out what they're up to oh, i'm sure it'll be fine uh, so turned out it was fine but uh yeah so he's either prescient or uh he uh just had enough at the end of that week but but anyway so that so that was that so you started off with uh, dungeons and dragons people can read some more about that whole situation in uh, Fancy Freaks and Gaming Geeks, but um, did you stick with Dungeons and Dragons, or did you move through different types of role-playing games? We 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 were uh, pretty uh, pretty devoted just to D and D. Although we had, um, I mean, one of the things was that in those days it was, it was a lot harder to find the gaming products than it, than maybe it was today, just due to mail order and internet. Um, right, sure. That was part and, of the fun to me, though. Yeah, yeah. And we 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 uh, we had one one or two stores that were you know within a car's drive uh, where we could get the stuff, but largely because I think TSR did a very good job of cross promoting. Whenever you bought a new product, there was always some ad for some other related one. So we tried out some of the other games. Uh, I actually have a couple of them here. I thought you might be interested in seeing them. You've probably seen them. Maybe some of our listeners haven't. I would say the second most popular one was uh, Gamma World. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which was, uh, and this is the actual boxed set. I was going to say, look at that. Yeah, check you out. Yeah, I've got uh, the closest thing that I've got to, uh, the closest thing I've got, I'm going to hold up. We can compare uh, our uh, role-playing credential here. I've got uh, I've got this. This is my. Oh, nice. nice. That's my, it's that. <laughs> For those of you that are just listening, we're holding up boxes at each uh, <laughs> any, any kind of space. I got one of those too. What I got. <laughs> <laughs> oh, chick, yours is much better, much more warm than mine. Yeah, this sure. is pretty. Um, it's pretty sad. This thing. Yeah. Sad, this thing. Yeah. Well, that's that's care. That's care worn. Is that what they call it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's got a patina on it. Don't, pat don't don't tape that up. Don't tape yeah. that up. It makes it more valuable. I've watched Antiques Roadshow. I know what the story is. <laughs> but this there was this version of the game. The the, the book inside that bo this box set is is this book yes. here. So this is the version that right. I first. Right. And, and of course, we jumped to the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons rule set, but but we started to branch out with some of the other ones. So there's the game, this game Gamma World, which was the, based in a kind of post-apocalyptic, uh, you know, the world has been destroyed by nuclear weapons, and there are all these um, sort of marauding bands of people, and instead of magic, you know, people had uh, had had mutations. Right. Um, and there was a Wild West version called Boot Hill. Boot Hill, yeah. And I never, I never saw or played Boot Hill, but I did, I did hear about it. I spent an awful lot of time um, trying to track down a copy of um, Boot Hill and also Cloak and Dagger. 
Um, uh, because I lived in a really small town, like I lived in a small town in a small country. Uh, most listeners will know I'm from New Zealand, but for those just tuning in for the first time, that's yeah. the accent you can hear. Um, although I was born in England, so it's kind of a mishmash of, of a whole bunch of different accents. But but yeah, so I came from a small town in a country that was miles away from everywhere else, and everything was incredibly expensive um, and hard to come by. So I found, eventually found myself in Auckland, which is a city of about a million people, um, and I tried, I phoned around all these places to try and get hold of some of those games because that was the closest I'd come to, to a decent-sized population centre, but was unsuccessful. Did you ever play Boot Hill? Uh, like, own the box, I should say, sorry? Yeah, we played Boot Hill, and we played, uh, there was a version of a, of a, it sounds a bit like the Cloak & Dagger one you're talking about. This is a James Bond espionage game called... Um, uh, Top okay. Secret? Top Secret, thank you. I was blanking on the name. Top Secret. Yeah, yeah, I've got Top Secret. <laughs> Yeah, and that was fun. Uh, that was actually probably the more, f- I mean, Gamma World and, and Top Secret were probably both equally fun. And it was a um, sort of science fiction version, uh, Metamorphosis Alpha, that the designer behind Gamma World, uh, Jim Ward, uh, who I talked right. about, talked to and wrote about in my in my book a little bit, um, right. he, he designed that, that game. And that was a lot of fun, too. That was a lot of fun. Right. And where does Star Frontiers fit into that whole uh, oh, That's great. Uh, I, I'm going to embarrass myself by not remembering exactly how that all fits into this. I don't remember it all, so. <laughs> and there were other ones. So I've already were, embarrassed myself. Yeah, and there were other ones that weren't TSR games, like you know, uh, Traveler, and there were you know a whole bunch of other um, you know non non TSR ones. And for whatever reason, we never seemed to get out beyond the the, the TSR games, and maybe that was just right. the they had a monopoly on the on the local market or something. Um, right, right. In a small region. I think they're probably still too, to a degree. I think, think that uh, if you go to, at least certainly here in, in Canada, where I'm currently situated, um, if you go to um, Chapters or um, or Coles or something like that, all you'll really find on the shelf, if you just happen to be browsing around in terms of role-playing, is probably um, just the, whatever the latest edition of, uh, of Dungeons & Dragons is. So. Yeah. You know, I think probably still people contact that much more readily than anything else and, and may not even necessarily be aware of the idea that there may be entire shops filled with this uh, this type of this type of yeah. thing. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so while we're talking about the latest edition of, of Dungeons and Dragons, um, yeah. you're when I sort of I, I tipped my hand earlier on with this, you're a bit of a you're an aficionado, a, a, a journalist, um, and you've written a number of articles and we're on a tour uh, from what I could gather, um, talking about the 40th anniversary of the release of Dungeons and Dragons. What was that all about? Well, I've just been, um, as, as a kind of uh, uh, old old school gamer who was involved in the game back in the early days, and I think uh, 40 is a is a nice round number, and it certainly reminds me of my own um, turning of 40 years old myself, and and was an opportunity mm. to reflect back, I think, on the game and sort of the impact that it has had. And not coincidentally, you know, Wizards of the Coast is releasing the the new version of D and D, supposedly later on this summer. And so, um, for me, uh, as as a journalist who's trying to, uh, well, <laughs> partly to, to find new things to write about, but also, uh, you know, one of my favorite sort of genres of writing is a kind of blend of memoir, or personal essay, and you know, cultural criticism. So the right. 40th anniversary was a great opportunity just to think about, you know, how has this game really uh, impacted the culture in ways that I think most mainstream, um, you know, consumers of, of genre uh, culture, whether it's video games or movies or, or serialized television shows, that kind of thing, 
aren't really aware that the DD had a lot to do with uh, creating the foundation for, for a lot of that. So I, I've written right. a couple of pieces about that and kind of a slightly tongue in cheek one that was about sort of everything I needed to learn in life. I learned from Dungeons and Dragons, you know, just sort of that idea that we were playing this game and it was fun and I still play yes. D&D, but that you, you do learn things that are helpful to you uh, that yes. can apply to real life. And, and uh, that's something that, you know, I, could do, I do feel very strongly about because the game had such an influence on me as a kid and right. uh, <clears throat> that it can be the kind of game that you'll be, you'll be um, surprised at what you're, you're, you're able to, you know, find parallels between what happens in the game world and, and what's happening in your, in your life, I think. Right. I, I think that I've read a number of articles, not, not yours alone, um, about the idea of uh, role-playing Dungeons and Dragons particularly, although I don't know if, if it's a case of they just say that so that people will understand, um, you know, what you're talking about or whether it's role-playing games in general, but the how helpful or how useful it can be in a, in a business environment. And a couple of episodes ago, um, now I talked to a group of um, group of software designers um, about the fact that they had you know used that they played Dungeons and Dragons sort of the whole uh, team had got together and played Dungeons and Dragons together and they found it was quite useful for team building and sort of breaking down um, um, you know those sort of boss subordinate type relationships and, and so forth. Is, is that something that you've experienced firsthand at all or um, absolutely yeah I mean just people. There's so many ways to, to think about how the game uh, both sort of directly and indirectly can affect you. I think a, a team building office environment is a classic example. I mean, here you are, um, uh, you know, supposedly working on a, a common project or goal, theoretically, if you get along with your, your, your fellow office mates, if you're, if you're doing a kind of white collar, um, you know, corporate America job and, sure. um, you know, everybody has their role and, and you can learn from each other. There's sort of a celebration of diversity that I think we see in D&D. In &D. There's this idea right. that uh, you kind of start out, you know, not really knowing what you're doing and kind of weak in the, in the hierarchy or on the total pole and, and you gradually mm. find ways to, to, to make your, your way up. Um, right, right. And, and to, to me, the biggest the biggest way that I think the game can really school you is just that it it, it has a kind of uh, ability to um, you know teach people how to be very creative in terms of the way that they approach a problem. So that there's not always one solution to a problem. Um, there's not always uh, the the right choice isn't always necessarily to kill the the, the monster or whatever it is mm. you're you're, right. you're trying to. Uh, you come up against. Sometimes you need to sort of work around it, or sweet talk the thing, or you know, you know. There's always there's always multiple ways, and and every every one of those 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 options has a kind of you know, um, you know, ripple effect. And and because the game teaches people to to think about the stuff out loud, to kind of collaborate, to kind of huh. you know, problem solve in a group. Um, you know, that's an incredibly important. Uh, still to remember, especially nowadays, so many people are working kind of on their own in front of a computer screen and they're not really interacting right. with as much as they maybe were 25 years ago in a workplace or something like that. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you don't get that. Uh, like playing, as you say, playing Dungeons and Dragons, you get the opportunity to um, to 
you know, that hierarchy disappears. You'll be talking about how best to tackle a problem, you know, whether it's just how you're going to get these orcs away from the interest of the cave, whatever that might happen to be. You know, you, you don't have to defer to the boss in order to, you know, like you could have the good idea and you can talk to them on a, on a level which may encourage you or, or make it easier for you to do similarly and with problems that you're having, you know, with the project that you're working on in the in the workplace, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, well, I'm not really, I've never really worked in corporate America, but um, I imagine <laughs> that might happen. Um, uh, alternatively, maybe, maybe it doesn't. Um, but uh, so what else have you got going on right now? What do you got coming up? So I have been, uh, I'm actually working on a second book, which I can't quite, I probably should be careful about talking about it too much, but it's, um, it's uh, sort of in the final phases of, of um, getting it out there into the marketplace. And there's a very good chance that I'll be working on a second book this year, which will be great. It's been a little longer than I had, I had intended uh, in terms of the break between the first book and the second book. Sure. Um, and, um, you know, by and large, aside from, 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 from writing fantasy freaks and gaming geeks, I, I, I do make my living as a journalist and as a, as a writer and an occasional part-time teacher. So I'm constantly writing about, about movies and, and books and, and stuff that's happening in geek culture. There is for some of your listeners or, 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 or viewers who are in the Boston area or are planning to come to, uh, PAX East, which is, you know, Big gaming convention. I'm sure most of you guys know about this. Um, on April 12th, uh, I'm doing an event with actually two other guys who have both written books about about D and D. Uh, one is, and maybe you've had them on your show. I don't know. Uh, one is David Ewalt, who wrote a book called Of Dice and Men, and which came out last year. And this other guy, John Peterson, who wrote a book called Playing at the World. And they're both um, excellent books that delve into. Uh, much of the same material that's in, in my book. And so the three of us are going to give a panel. Uh, I forget the exact title. It's something like why D&D &D is still awesome after 40 years or something like that. Right, right. Uh, <clears throat> we'll just be geeking out about the game and, and uh, right. yeah. getting people to share it's their stories, right, much, yeah. like much like we're doing here. Right, yeah, well, I, yeah, I wish I could be. Um, I don't think I'm going to be making it to PAX East this year. My goal is to be to get to one role-playing convention every year. Um, and yeah. I think I'll be going probably to... Big Bad Con again this year, which is a convention in uh, San Francisco. But um, just winding the clock back uh, 10 years now oh, yeah. um, and sort of s s seminal events, I suppose, for um, role-playing uh, in general, um, thinking now about um, like the Lord of the Rings. Now, part of your book involves you going to um, going to New Zealand at right about that right about that time. And, and from a journalistic standpoint, um, how important was that um, in terms of absorption into into geek culture, and then as it relates to what geek culture was like when you wrote Fantasy Freaks and Gaming Geeks, and then most recently talking about I think uh, uh, just a couple of weeks maybe uh, now um, the presence of girls and and uh, gaming um, mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a lot to do in one one shot. Go for it, though. <laughs> I'll do it again. Uh, that was a good. It's a really good question. I mean, for me personally, the when the first Lord of the Rings movie came out in um, 2001, that was part of my reintroduction or re-geeking uh, because I had I hadn't really had much to do with the gaming hobby and I hadn't really been been following what was happening in in science fiction, fantasy, gaming for many many years. So it was really a, a seminal event, I think, for a lot of reasons. I think that. Um, there was some suspicion that the movie would be successful, but I don't know that Peter Jackson 
and and his whole team really knew for sure that it would be as popular as it as it was and and right. i think it really proved that uh there were a lot of people who had who had embraced the books and had really harbored this desire you know to be part of that that world and journey again to middle earth uh, in film form um right. A lot of people were not that happy with the Ralph Bakshi version of the, the animated version that came out in 1978, uh, which was an incomplete film. It didn't tell the whole story. And right. uh, so that movie was really pretty remarkable. And I think that um, it's it kind of made uh, geekdom a little safe for the masses. Obviously, video games have had a huge part of that as well. Uh, sort of non-geeky video games that a lot of people play now that, that are, are considered, you know, acceptable and not particularly nerdy but uh 15 years ago like you were saying when that movie first came out sure there'd been some some major science fiction fantasy franchises that had been successful but this was really the first of the the beginning of i think a reinterest in you know neoliberalism and and tolkien and uh sort of that whole return to that sort of swords and sorcery uh magical uh, middle ages kind of kind of realm and that has proven to have an incredible staying power uh, in our culture, mm-hmm. um, yes. which I can talk more about. Uh, but 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 uh, it's it's a very it's a very compelling, I think, time period uh, in a lot of people's yes. imaginations. Right. And then going from there to we've got The Hobbit out now, but then also Game of Thrones um, right. as well as. Absolutely. So how, how, what's your impressions of uh, the impact that Game of Thrones has had as, in relation to uh, Lord of the Rings? I mean, is Game of Thrones standing on the shoulders of this popularity of Lord of the Rings, or is it just a, a case of, you know, it's 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 just the right thing at the right time, or is it just well-made enough that it doesn't, it transcends genre? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, I think, I think it's hard to imagine that that show would be as popular had Lord of the Rings hadn't, you know, had, Lord of the Rings not come before it. Um, I don't want to say that, you know, um, uh, you know, that show and, and Martin and, you know, sort of what he created was, was uh, entirely uh, on, you know, on the shoulders of, of Tolkien. But I think that we wouldn't have had, we probably wouldn't have had um, the popularity of Game of Thrones were it not for the popularity of Harry Potter. We wouldn't have had Harry Potter were it not for the popularity of Tolkien and, and right, right. he was he was standing on the shoulders of of someone someone else. But I think I oh, think sure. that those movies, that the Lord of the Rings movies, went a long way towards making the idea of being involved in a or being a viewer, being a, spect- a spectator of a um, you know what was at the time a pretty a pretty weird story. I don't think that people knew who Gollum was or who Gandalf was or what hobbits were until that right. movie, came. and that that really brought all that into the into the public in a way that. Um, I think was quite surprising. So, uh, but yeah, Game of Thrones is an amazing, an amazing phenomenon as well. And, and in a way, it's made me think a lot about the idea of how television, in some ways, is so much better suited for these big fat books um, because right, right. there's so much more detail. <clears throat> Assuming you can, you can persuade someone to fund a uh, twelve-part, you know, or you know, twenty-five-part right. series. Yes, yeah, for sure, for sure. So, um, with those two things in mind. Um, and sort of thinking about fancy freaks and then also about the article you wrote recently about girls and 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 gaming and then thinking all the way back to uh the year 2001 mm. um you're, you're more of a being a scholar of that sort of thing how have you noticed um a gender equality or lack thereof or the 
or how um, how much the game has been absorbed uh, by by women, or girls um, through that through that time. Well, I think you know when I think back to my my early introduction to this uh, this whole genre, when I think of on the hobby, when I think about D and D, you know there were no there were no women who interested interested in playing. Um, I was of a certain subculture in my high school where we didn't have a lot to do with girls, to be quite frank, uh, and and that may have had something to do with uh, the kind of kid I was at the time, or may have had some something to do with the kinds of of interests that I had. Uh, and what to me is astounding now looking back at that time and thinking about what's changed in the past, you know, 30 years it'll be now since I graduated from high school, that the, the, um, all of the, the possibilities for interacting with fantasy um, as a genre have multiplied so that your options aren't just reading books or playing a game, but uh, in, in, in different kinds of games, if you think of Lord of the Rings Online or any of these games where there's a pretty sophisticated uh, social element where you can interact with other players. If it's an MMO, for example, uh, there's right. things that you can do that don't just involve running around and, and, and killing things. Uh, and right. that can very much appeal to, to females. I'm not at all suggesting that, uh, you know, I don't want to diss the, the, the fairer sex as it were and suggest that, that being in combat in, in these games or is not something they're excited about, but in some cases it, it isn't, but the world, sure. yeah, yep. the worlds that these games take place in are so much, more rich and full. There's other kinds of things you can do um, that don't involve just just you know dungeon yes. crawl kind of environments. Yeah. So that's made it that's made a huge I think uh, brought in a lot of women that may not have normally played. And the video game makers have been very savvy, obviously, and they've they've come up with all kinds of games that you can just play on the subway on your way to work uh, on your right. iPhone that right. are not particularly sophisticated, but they're they're cool looking little puzzle games and that sort of thing. Right. Um, and uh, and Again, those are in, in some ways on the same level of sophistication as the games that that I was playing in video arcades back in the '80s, uh, right. and they were never, not never, rarely you would see again women in the, in those environments as well. So, um, all, you know. all female characters. The, the only two female video game characters, like uh, prime female characters that I know of in uh, video games, I can think of uh, is Valkyrie in uh, in Gauntlet. Um, yep. Uh, there's, I uh, forget what her name is now from Optimus Prime. I forget what the lady's name was. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, there was Chun-Li in Street Fighter, but I don't think you could yeah. call Chun-Li a particularly good role model or something that people maybe necessarily people yeah. would want to uh, to to see. So did, how far are we away from having a female protagonist in a, in a big title game? It's a really good question. I think it's something that, that people particularly uh, female, females who are critics of, of, the, of the video game industry are, are upset about. Um, mm. And it's- Rightfully I mean, so too. Yeah, and rightfully so. I mean, it's, to be honest, it's, it's not surprising given that a lot of the protagonists of um, action movies are men and, and that women in general have a hard time getting roles in Hollywood or where they age out, you know, at a certain age, they, be, they, they right. 40, hit 40 and they're no longer of interest. Right. Uh, or right. at least decides they're no longer of interest. Um, right. Yeah, it's hugely, and, and you could you could make the same argument for you know racial or ethnic ethnic diversity. Uh, sure. And and it's a kind of um, it's a kind of uh, you know vicious cycle. Does the lack of female protagonists prevent 
more women from becoming engaged in these kinds of narratives, or is it, you know, vice versa, that uh, right, right. that there's not enough, uh, and therefore they're not, you know, they're not attracted. But you know, statistically, there's still again, I haven't seen a more more recent statistic on this, but you know, from what I've heard, uh, probably depends if you drill down into the data a bit further what the what the actual statistics are in kinds of games, but supposedly right. in general. A video game uh, demographic, it's about 40-60 in terms of men to women, in terms of those who play. Right. Uh, right. Now, do mostly men play the super uh, sort of uh, level-grinding, you know, MMOs that are set in fantasy worlds and women more more inclined to play different kinds of games? Uh, that, that kind of, you know, that kind of data would be interesting to look at to find out. Right, uh, sure. There was an interesting piece that's on the t in the paper yesterday about uh, the popularity of um, because of the Hunger Games movies, the popularity of yes. bows and arrows as toys yes. for girls. And I thought that yes. was interesting. Of course, Nerf and some of the other you know retailers or ma toy manufacturers are are uh, Mattel and so forth are being very clever and they're trying to yeah. think of ways to make these toys palatable. You do have to make them pink and fuchsia, you know, for a little girl to get I know, it. it's strange, isn't it? I was like, yeah, but look, the and my, my daughter automatically was like, oh, yeah, I don't want one of those. Can I? And I'm like, I guess, but there's this other one that's just exactly the same, but yeah. it's not pink. Which one do you prefer? I want yeah. the pink one. I'm like, yeah, oh, this, I don't know. I mean, we haven't surrounded her with pink stuff, but she wanted the pink one. So, I don't... yeah, I know that's it's, it's really interesting. And I know that Lego got a very uh, got 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 trashed in the media recently for yeah, some yeah. problem in in that there right? girls you know that the girls were complaining that they weren't that the the girl version of Lego was basically you know Barbies and that the boy version was was yeah. more and more you know techy and that kind of thing so yes, it's yes. it represents a you know a certain amount of sexism that happens in in pop culture everywhere yeah. um, yes. but it's changing it's getting better I, I think it's getting better there's no doubt it's getting better um, yes. But it's not, you know, it's not, it's not, it certainly hasn't reached a 50-50 parity. Um, and, no. And I think there's a lot to be said about just thinking about what is it about certain kinds of games or certain kinds of experiences that for whatever reason just, you know, do attract more men. Uh, right. Maybe it's our, our sense of competitiveness or maybe it's the way our brains are wired or, you know, we're not as good as yeah, social. Right. So we need an activity to do with our friends, whereas women can just sit around and, and, and chat over a glass of wine, and men men need to have a, a thing they do. I mean, that's probably a horrible thing to to, to suggest on a, on a on a broad level, but but maybe there's some truth to something like that. Uh, yeah, we have to be so careful with the generalizations, don't we? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just yeah, yeah. If you want to get annoyed about it, by all means, write to me, Daniel at hasgaming.com, um, <laughs> and you can find it online too. Exactly. Uh, you can uh, send me an email and and uh, and and complain, but. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm hopeful, and I think that one of the themes that I'm glad, I'm glad you've been talking about this in this podcast—the idea that you know things have changed for the for the good mm. um, overall, as far as sort of gaming and sort of geek culture—and what what to me is interesting is what are the younger kids, maybe the age of, of your children, if they want to self-identify yeah. as geeks, do they have to kind of go out and do something even weirder and even more? Um, right. Been more, you know, uh, extreme, or 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 just the idea yeah. of being geek is kind of just going to be absorbed into the general culture, and it's sort of like like one of the thing you can be that's as equally as cool as being a jock, you know. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, probably, I'm yeah, going to do can... one one quick role playing type question, and then I'm going to talk about something that's of interest to me um, because it's my show. Um, so <laughs> I've got a 
million questions here, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask you one. If you could role play with four people, living or dead, mm. um, who would you choose? One. You can't choose family members, okay. and you can't choose game designers. And you can't choose people who um, you feel like you should be including, like any of your current game group, because um, they'd feel offended. So it has to be basically uh, it can be historical figures, it can be fictional figures, but uh, yeah, you okay. can. I've, I've, I've cleared all those landmines for you. You can feel free to choose whoever you want now. Oh wow! And it can't be it can't be a game designer. So I couldn't say like. Well, let's just say Gary. Let's just say Gary Gygax is guaranteed to show up, whether you want him to or right. not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or it, Dave Arnold. It's funny to, to me. What What's less interesting about particular people is more the era. You know, it'd be fun to go back in time to 1974 and 1970 and 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 be in that room when when the guys were first putting the game together. Um, right. You know, wow, that's a good question. You know, I think. Um, it would be really fun to play with uh, someone who's a great actor who would be just, you know, assuming they were into it too. Let's say Ian McKellen or, you know, someone, the guy who plays Gandalf or someone like that, just as a kind of um, uh, to have a real, uh, uh, a real actor in the room. Um, right. You know, gosh, I don't know. Um, who else would I, who else would I have? Celebrities are okay, I guess. Right. Living celebrities. Of course. Someone like, uh, you can do yeah. celebrities too if you like. Yeah, people who I already know who people who 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 have played game D and D and and are still living who would be fun to play with. If you think of like Vin Diesel or you think of uh, Stephen Colbert or something like that, that would be pretty. That would be pretty great. Cool. Uh, right. Completely winging it, so I'm not sure that I would answer this question the same if you asked me tomorrow. And That's right. uh, for the fourth person, uh, wow, hmm. I'm gonna have to come back to you in that one. I can't think of a fourth. Okay, well, we can leave a CD in case something crops up. And what would you play? Uh, probably just straight up D and I mean, I have to say, I'm pretty, I'm pretty boring when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, you know, when, when I started playing D and D again after having not played for 25 years, the only game I wanted to play was D and D, and we just got out of roll the, you know, the ones we were showing earlier, the actual books, and kind of looked through them. And I found some guys based in Boston who 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 had a similar desire. And nice. uh, and the guy that actually taught me to play the game lives in Boston now as well. And and uh, nice. Well, we sort of play a version of D and D that's very close to what we were playing back in you know 1984 um, when I stopped nice. playing. So I probably would I probably would just stick with straight up D and D. The version we play is so it's just a hybrid. It's kind of like very very rules light, and we just kind of when we have a question, we sort of look at a rule book, but we largely just sort of figure it out on our own. Um, it's more right. than our memories of the rules than the actual rules, in a way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's one of the things I was going to was going to ask you quickly was uh, how close was the game Dungeons Dragons that you played to the actual rules initially? And you've sort of you sort of answered that question yeah. a lot of times. People come on the show say, you know, we played this game, but you know, when we understood the rules or when we actually got the rules, what we thought were the rules was actually a module and just a player's guide or something yeah. like that. So. <laughs> Well, what's interesting I've learned is that my memory of playing as a kid, as a teenager, was that there were a lot of getting the rule correctly, getting it right, and sort of being the person at the table who really could persuade the other people that this is the way the right, you know, this is what Gary Gygax would have meant, you know, by that rule, you know, whatever, right. all that kind of what Gary would have wanted. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And the whole idea of um, maybe just teenage boys working out their 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 own identity struggles and figuring out how to socialize with other kids. I mean, there's so much of that is kind of uh, pissing contests and that kind of thing anyway. So there's an element of, of, of that, that uh, while it was more um, 
I would say we are more passionate about the rules. Uh, I don't miss that at all anymore because that doesn't really matter. Uh, what's more important, I think, for us now is that we're telling a story, that we're having fun. Um, we're kind of carving out for ourselves this little three or four hour block where nothing else is going on in the world except what we're doing and the and the story and the stuff that we're we're, we're making up as we as we go along. And and yeah. honestly, it's like half the time we can't even remember like, well, yeah, how do we calculate? You know, I don't know. Yeah. How many spells do I get at this level? I mean, all this stuff that just, you know, we, yeah. and we have to get out our player's handbook and like, or whatever. We're actually using a kind of knockoff version of D&D, like some of one of these uh, Osric kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, clones or whatever, which is fine. You know, right. it, it's basically yeah. all based on what we were playing before. Right, right, right. Gets the job done for sure. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'm going to try and uh, strain to selfish territory here, I guess, but I'm going to, I promise I'll bring it around to role playing to, to finish off here. Um, Ethan's written on incredibly broad um, uh, area, a number of, of topics. He's written about, um, you know, traveling to uh, traveling to Canada uh, as a as a child and dealing with sort of family um, issues uh, in terms of your your parents. You know, that was a particularly poignant article that I enjoyed reading. Mm-hmm. Unfortunate to never actually actually experiencing that myself. Um, and uh, you wrote written about. Uh, Oh, like so many, so many things. But because I'm, we're running short of time, we're just going to cut to the chase. Um, you spent a week um, uh, in a monastery. That's mm. one thing I really wanted to really wanted to ask ask about. Well, yeah. What do you want to know about it? I mean, it was um, it was a pretty. Um, I mean, I'm unfortunate in 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 my work as a journalist. If I can come up with a an idea for something that I just want to do because I'm curious. Um, yes. And I like I like to throw myself into situations that I've never encountered before. So you know, I worked for many years as a travel writer. I lived over in France for five years, and I would just constantly come up with these ideas and say, "What if I did this for you know, I hike across Scotland or I you know go mountain biking in the Pyrenees?" And so when I moved right. to, Berlin, I had this idea that I would just, and I heard about this monastery that had a right. had a, a a kind of silent retreat um, uh, that was open to the public, and you just you know sign up and. I'm not a religious person particularly, but I was right. interested in the idea of what would it be like to kind of think about what my life would have been like had I been on a on a monastery at a monastery, sort of sequestered or secluded uh, from the rest of the world at least for a week. And I did my best to kind of immerse myself into that experience and went to the you know it was like one of these monasteries where the the monks go to uh, they worship in the chapel like every three hours they get up and it was very Cistercian order of monks so they're very regimented they get up at you know they have like the vespers and the whatever i forget the names for all the different things they get up at four o'clock in the morning they get up at one o'clock in the morning they go to the church they do the thing they come back yes um, yeah it, that um that whole situation um one of my favorite uh, books i'm not sure if you read is pillars of the earth oh yeah um, yeah sure sure by, by Ken Follett, and I was really captivated by reading that. So I, I was interested to see that you got up for um, Vigil, I think is the one that's in the middle of the night, right? Right, that's right, yeah. I was able to um, do and, uh, and And I sort of thought to myself, I, it's probably as close as you can get to returning to what life was like back in, you know, like 1,000, you know, 1,100 um Something like that, right? Did you? Were there any modern conveniences? I'm mean, assuming it was running water and so forth, but yeah, for the it, most part, did it? It, it probably. In a funny, you're, it's funny you mentioned that because, in a way, I, I think I expected it to be a lot more primitive and a lot more like it would have been in the medieval era. And of course, it was. You know, we still had beds with sheets, and we had central heating, and you know, there was a 
meals that were served to us. We weren't just eating gruel and, uh, you know, meat or something like that. Uh, but the monks would dress, uh, the monks, not the lay people who were there for the retreat, but the monks were, were dressing in a, a traditional robe. Yeah. Uh, and the, the actual structure, even though it was a new structure, it, it, obviously in the States, you can't go back much further than a couple hundred years. Um, you can't get a medieval, a medieval uh, actual Gothic medieval structure being built here in the States uh, uh, sure. that has the, uh, the authenticity, but there was a, an effort to make it look like a kind of cloister uh, right. was ba based on a kind of, you know, monastery that would have, would have been in ex existence in, in uh, I think it was France in the 15th right. century or something. So there was an element of, of suspension of disbelief, and there were times when I really could right. imagine what would it really have been like, you know, could I have lived this mm -hmm. way, you know, what, right. what about this lifestyle could, could I bring home with me? Um, and, uh, uh, and the idea that I didn't talk for a whole week was actually very interesting. I'd never experienced that before. Um, we had right. dinner with other, other people who were on retreat and we would sit silently <laughs> in the dining hall and, and just eat our meals and listen to, <laughs> listen to these Bible lessons. It was, it was, you know, again, something I never done before, but, right. uh, really great experience, uh, as, as a, just a way to be, um, removed from your your own life and your own time in, in a way that's, that I think can be very profound. Right. Um, and so the uh, last question is, uh, having had that experience, have you ever played a cleric since? That's really funny. Uh, my, um, no. The short answer is no, I have not. <laughs> Although, that, well, that's not true. I mean, my, my character that I'm playing now is actually a ranger cleric. So right. he's more ranger than cleric. He's a, you know, dual class uh, guy. Right. He's, probably more you know more aragorn than fire tuck i would say um right. but but he can cast some spells he's a sort of nature nature cleric dude uh right. but that you, you, one of the chapters in my in my book fantasy freaks and gaming geeks i i participate in a larp and the character i choose is is a monk as well so there's something right. there's something about that experience that clearly has attracted me i'm not Entirely figured out what that's all about. Me, me, and my therapist perhaps can talk about that one this week when I when I see her, and we can try to find out why. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Ethan Gilsdorf. Thanks, well, Ethan. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Really appreciate it. And until next week, keep talking the walk.